Second Thessalonians chapter three, beginning in verse six, it says. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren... Do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey the word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul began the chapter with a request that the believers pray For both the message, that is the gospel, and the messenger, that is the apostles. Paul then continues and reassures them about God's faithfulness, about God's love, about God's patience in verses 3 and 4. And so the chapter moves from a request to a reassurance to a reprimand. Paul issues a stern warning to the lazy in verses 6 through 10, to those who engage in gossip in verse 11 and 13, and to the disobedient in verse 14. Paul will close the letter with a few remarks, a prayer from his heart and words from his hand. And part of the point of the whole passage, if you will, and all of the book of Second Thessalonians that we've learned is Paul is imparting to a group of struggling Christians under pain, under persecution, that they're to persevere. And he is going to impart to them a vision. Now, by the way, that vision is often the word vision itself is often a euphemism in Christian circles. Typically, when we use the term vision, what we really are asking is, what are you going to do when people come to me and they say, Pastor, what's your vision for the church? They really mean, how are you going to lead the church? How are you going to guide the church? What is going to be the vision for worship? What is going to be the vision for discipleship? What is going to be the vision for discipleship? Clearly, the Bible says where there is no vision, the people perish in Proverbs twenty nine eighteen. But for me, vision is more than a euphemism. 
For me, vision is the ability to see God in the circumstances that we face. And that's the idea. It isn't us looking at God, but rather it is us looking at God with hope and prayer and confidence that he is going to guide us. In other words, it's the ability to see God in the circumstance that you face and trust him. Someone once wisely said that vision looking inward becomes duty and vision looking outward becomes aspiration. But vision that looks upward becomes faith. And so when Jesus taught, when Jesus spoke, when Jesus acted, it was with an overarching vision. It was to glorify God and then to impart a vision of God's kingdom. In Matthew 4.23, Jesus said the gospel of the kingdom. The message, the miracles were just sneak peeks of coming attractions of a future kingdom. When Jesus healed the when Jesus healed the sick and raised the dead and fed the hungry, he did so with an idea of what a future world is going to look like when God is in control. Yes, he raised the dead. Yes, he healed the sick. Yes, he fed the hungry. But he also confronted the unruly. And he also addressed false religious teachers and their false religious system. Jesus loved the unlovable. Jesus forgave the sinner. And so when Jesus offers forgiveness to people who have seemingly committed atrocious crimes, he does so for a reason. It isn't just so you could be feel free from guilt. He cleanses the sinner so that you can experience hope And then participate in the kingdom. That's the idea. And so. The believers in Thessalonica, remember, they were pounded by pain. They were hounded by persecution. Some of them were caught up in the prophetical implications of the soon return of Jesus. And now think about this for a moment. Paul rightly told them that Jesus could come back at any moment. They wrongly assumed that if Jesus could come back at any moment, that that gave some wicked and lazy people the right to cease their personal responsibilities and their family responsibilities and their kingdom responsibilities. And they began to take advantage of their brothers and sisters who were already under pain, who were already experiencing persecution. And so that's the idea. They believed in the coming kingdom, but they didn't understand the implications of that coming kingdom for their own personal life. Believers in Jesus are never given an excuse by Jesus to be lazy. And so Paul will give six incentives, six motivators for those who stubbornly refuse to repent, for those who continue to sin By not working when in fact they can work. And the motivators include refusing fellowship with the lazy. By personal example, survival, harmony, shame, and love. And so it begins in verse 6. Look what it says. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly. And not according to the tradition which he received from us. So Paul begins with a command. This is not a suggestion. This is an order. And Paul does so not on his own apostolic authority. 
He doesn't say, I, Paul, the apostle, order you to do this. But rather, he says, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means by the authority of Jesus. Now, again, remember, whenever you read in the Bible, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that command has to include three things. Number one, that it is authority that comes from Jesus. Number two, it is something that is consistent with the character of Jesus. And number three, that it is consistent with what Jesus has already said. Because here's what we know. Jesus would not say one thing to one person and another thing to another person. And so when Paul makes this command and he does so that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which which you received from us. Another translation reads that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. So Paul will correct in part a misunderstanding in the book of Corinthians, because when They read, withdraw from a disorderly person or a person who lives an unruly life. Paul will later clarify and say, hey, I didn't mean people who are unbelievers and I didn't mean wicked people in the world. Hey, guess what? In order for us to withdraw from every wicked person, we would have to leave the planet Earth. So he's not talking about your wicked boss or your wicked neighbor or the wicked person who says, I don't believe in God and I don't believe in the Bible. And I don't care about you. He's not talking about that person. He's talking about the person who says, I believe in the Bible and I believe in Jesus and I believe in God and I believe all of the things that the Bible says about what the Bible says. For the person who names the name of Christ, but who refuses to live their life in Christ, then you're to withdraw from them. And by the way, the word disorderly can also be translated unruly. And literally, it's that word that means out of order, out of place. This was a word that was frequently used to describe soldiers who had broken ranks or an army that broke formation and began to run in different directions. As a matter of fact, I was watching the History Channel about America and it's doing the portion on the Revolutionary War. And you have the British with the largest army and navy with the most well-equipped army that, that the world had seen up to that time fighting against the Patriots in the United States of America. And throughout this little series, you'll see General Washington or you'll see the other generals calling the soldiers to keep the ranks, to hold their position, to hold the line. That's part of the point. The point is we as Christians, we as fellow believers, we as ministers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are part of God's God's army. And as part of God's army, we share a common mission. We worship the Lord. We disciple the saints. We reach the lost. Our marching orders are to go into all of the world, to make disciples of all the people, instructing them in the things that we were instructed and remembering what Jesus said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Our mission is to remind sinners that there's a savior, that the guilty can be experienced forgiveness. And that the unrighteous can experience righteousness in Christ. That's the idea. 
And so police will sometimes charge people with disorderly conduct. But this isn't exactly what Paul has in mind. Paul's emphasis is on the believer who isn't just simply doing something that looks criminal, but the believer who is acting in an irresponsible way, who's broken the ranks, so to speak. So discipleship isn't a term reserved for leaders. Discipleship isn't just for the pastors. It isn't just for the people in leadership. Discipleship isn't the designation of an elite or special forces unit of Christianity. Discipleship is a duty and an obligation for all who name the name of Jesus. Can you imagine an army where the soldiers report to no one, where they march to whoever happens to be beating the drum, where they never report for duty, where they don't receive an assignment and where they're never held accountable when duties are ignored or neglected? That's the idea. And see, we have a large enough church that people can come into our church. They can go through the doors. They can find a nice, comfortable seat. And then they can slip out and they never have to meet anyone and they never have to participate. But you see, that's not the point of church. That's why we have so many small groups. We have groups where people can meet and pray together. We have youth groups and student groups and men's groups and women's groups. We have all kinds of different groups of people who can participate in one another's lives. Someone might say, I report to Jesus. I don't report to you. Fair enough. But remember what Paul is saying. I'm commanding you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea being, I'm not doing this, making up my own business. Now, the word disorderly, remember, can also mean unruly, but it can also describe the truant who's run away from school or the apprentice who's abandoned his or her apprenticeship. There's an awful TV show called The Apprentice. And I don't watch it, but I have watched bits and pieces of it. And there was one episode entitled Celebrity Apprentice. And help me understand. It's my understanding that this is where failed actors, former celebrities and fallen politicians engage in humiliating exercises to raise money for whatever cause that Donald Trump has deemed appropriate. And apparently the goal of the program seems to fire the losers until one cutthroat has been rises to the exalted position of apprentice. Have I got it right? OK, now. That's not what Paul is saying. It isn't that the church is a place where people engage in wicked behavior in order to rise to the place of, of leadership. That's not the point. As a matter of fact, Paul commands that we withdraw from every brother. And I want to emphasize that because, again, the implication is this is a person who says, I know God. I love God. I believe the Bible. I, I know Jesus. I love Jesus. And so that's the idea. Paul will repeat this form of discipline in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 through 19, where Paul includes the warning to stay away from false teachers who are slaves 
to their own appetites. In Thessaloniki, the threat wasn't from celebrity TV evangelists or smooth talking, silk suited, glow in the dark celebrity saints. But lazy daisies, the idle, the indolent. For those who have settled into the habitual lifestyle of sponging off the generosity of others. That's who he's talking about. And these are people who not only refuse to work, but they refuse to work for religious reasons. Do you understand what I'm saying? He's not talking about necessarily the unemployed. He's not talking about necessarily a person who is sick or needy or handicapped or who has some mental, emotional or developmental issue that precludes them from working. That's not what he's talking about. Paul has addressed this issue before. We know that even from verse 10. Look down at the text where it says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. The implication being this is something that we've already talked about. This is something that we've already visited. And so now he says, look, this is not a suggestion. This is a command. And Paul is ordering the reader to keep away from every so-called brother or sister who refuses to work. And to shun them. That's what he's saying. I know what you might be thinking. Well, aren't there exceptions? No, not that I can find in the text. There's no excuse for someone who is able to work, who is physically capable of working, who refuses to work. The idea is keep away. It's the verb stello and it's in the middle voice. It means pull back from. It means avoid. It means, yes, whether you like to believe it or not, it means shun. And when we think about this from another perspective, this is the third step that's mentioned in Matthew 18. This is the process whereby when a brother or a sister who is a believer finds themselves in sin, the first step is to confront the believer in their sin. The second step is to, to, to confront them privately. Excuse me. The first step is to confront them privately. The second step is to bring two or more people with you. To confront them. And the third step is to tell it to the congregation for the purpose of removing the person from the from the fellowship, not for the long haul, but rather for the short term so that the person will come to a place of repentance so that they'll be reconciled in their relationship, both with the church and with each other. And that's the idea. And so you might think, well, what why does the text say Don't count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother in verse 15. The reason why is because remember all the while the point is to bring them to a place of repentance, submission to the word of God, and then reconciliation both to God and to the congregation. That's the idea. And so when Paul sees those who refuse to work, When he sees those who are leading an unruly lifestyle, when he sees these people living a life that's completely out of control and out of order. And he says, remember the tradition which we handed down to you. Now, remember, we've already talked about that word tradition and the word tradition means that which is handed down. 
And when Paul is using the term the tradition, he means the divine revelation that's been given by God to Jesus, that's been imparted to the apostles and then handed down to us. That's the idea. This isn't about extra biblical revelation. This is about clearly the instructions that have already been given. I'm going to ask you just a flat out simple question. Do you think the Bible encourages or discourages laziness? It discourages it. Okay, let's take one more step. Do you think laziness is a sin? I think you're right. The answer is it is a sin. The Bible forbids laziness. And if you take if you just turn the page a couple of pages back to first Thessalonians chapter four. In first Thessalonians chapter four, verse 11 and 12, Paul has already written them, quote, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside. That means the unbeliever in the in, in the unbelieving world and that you may lack nothing. So he's already given the instructions work, 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 not simply because it's a good thing, although it is a good thing, but work so that you can make a provision not only for your family, but but for the kingdom of God in order to advance the kingdom of God. And so here's Paul's point, even though you may not like to hear what I'm about to say. Since the Bible forbids laziness, the person who refuses to work when they can, in fact, work is guilty of rejecting God's word. That's the point. Because they're guilty of rejecting God's word. And see, this brings it into a whole different situation when you're talking about, I don't care what the Bible says, and I don't care what you say, and I don't care what Jesus says, and I don't care what what Paul says. Part of the point of the seriousness of the issue that Paul is making is that true believers love the Lord. They long for fellowship with other believers and to be cut off from fellowship is supposed to serve as a motivator to get right with God and to make sure that the situation is dealt with. That's the point. People who know God and people who love the Lord Embrace corporate worship and they embrace the reality of what it means to be in fellowship with one another. And so Paul is going to move from this issue of disfellowship to example. And so he goes, "Okay, look, if you want another reason, I'll give you another reason. In verse seven, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. And so in that single sentence. Paul reminds them, when I showed up, did I somehow leave you with the thought that that would be okay? From early childhood, you probably heard your parents and your grandparents say, actions speak louder than you all know the statement. Actions speak louder than words. I'm not lazy. I'm willing to work. What? It's 11 o'clock. Are you going to get up? Leave me alone. 
Are you being lazy? Oh, no, I'm not being lazy. I'm resting my eyes. Now, again, we're not talking about someone who's handicapped. We're not talking about a person who wants a job. We're talking about a person who uses their considerable talents to avoid working. That's the point that Paul is making. When Paul uses the expression, how you ought to follow us, he means example. As a matter of fact, that one statement, how you ought to follow us in the original language is a single Greek verb. It's mimio may I. It's there's a related noun, which is the source of the English word mimic. We get the word mimic from this particular thing. Now, remember, mimic is different from mock. Mimic means you repeat something. Mock is where you're making fun of the person who you are repeating. Tragically, when I was a kid growing up, my brother and I, we would mock the priest. I grew up in a religious tradition where um, the priest was from the county uh, Cork and, and Ireland. And so, you know, the, pri- the priest would be sitting there and he would be doing the homily and he would say whatever it is that he happened to be saying. My brother and I, we would just poke each other. You know, may you be in heaven a half an hour before the devil knows you're dead. You know, we would just be doing all saying all kinds of mocking kinds of statements, you know. We would mimic the priest's speech, but we wouldn't necessarily mimic his behavior. One Bible teacher lists several characteristics in which Paul sought to imitate Jesus, both in ministry and manner. You'll remember that Paul preaches in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. Paul endures suffering in chapter 2, verse 2. He exercises honesty and integrity in chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Humility in verse 6. Gentleness in verse 7. Affection in verse 8. Sacrifice in verse 9. Holiness in verse 10. And then prayer In chapter three, verse 10. And so, again, when Paul says you yourselves ought to know how you ought to follow us, he's talking about in the word, in suffering, in honesty, in integrity, in humility, in gentleness, in affection, in self-sacrifice, in holiness, in prayers. That's what he's talking about. And so in Second Thessalonians, chapter three, verse eight, look what he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread. Free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. You know what this is Paul's way of saying? I paid my own way. When the tab came, I picked up the tab. Paul worked. The Lord God exalts work and commands it. We're all familiar with Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments where it says six days you shall work. But on the seventh day you will rest. So here's what we choose to do. We choose to debate over whether it's Saturday or Sunday instead of actually looking at the text and reading the part where it says six days shall you work. I know what some of you are thinking. I thought work was a curse. No. Well, isn't it true that, you know, when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, that thorns and thistles began to grow and and that they had it made in the garden? Yes, it's true. They fell, but not true. They had a job in the garden. 
God created human beings in such a way that we were always meant to do something. You are not meant to be lazy. You are meant to work. And that's the idea. The Lord sets the example. It's the Lord who works in Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. He preserves in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. He provides everything in 1 Chronicles 29:11. He is in, in in charge of judgment and redemption according to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 5. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that God is at work. Do you remember in Psalm 104 verse 14 where it says It is the Lord who causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the labor of man so that he may work or so that he may bring forth food from the earth. Work is a gift from God. I know what some of you are thinking. That can't be. Is that in the Bible? Yeah. You see, we live in a culture and a society That's a bumper sticker society. I owe, I owe, it's off to work I go. In other words, work is that unpleasant thing that we have to do in order to do what we really want to do. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be four-wheeling. I would rather be shopping at Kohl's. Hey, I understand. Find a job That you love to do and then find someone stupid enough to pay you money to do it. That's the idea. Work is not a part of Satan's plan to make life miserable for you. Work provides us with the ability to hone our skills and to be productive and to prevent laziness and idleness. So that we can actually make a provision, not only for our families, but to expand the kingdom. And as a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, it says slaves, read employers or employees. Employees, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh. Read employers. With fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Jesus doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service. That's what it says in the Bible with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men. You work for Jesus. It may look like your boss, but it's really the Lord. It may look like this person doesn't know, love, or in any way embrace what God has to say. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we work. Clearly, Jesus said preachers might rightfully obtain their livelihood from the work of the gospel. Paul even writes about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, where he says, Even so the Lord has commanded... That's Jesus. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Paul is pointing out he has a right as an apostle to expect support, but he's willingly able to forfeit that right for the sake of setting an example. And he talks about it in first Corinthians chapter nine, verses one through 14. And so it's not unusual for many Pastors and ministers and full time Christian workers to work in order to make 
a provision so that they're not a burden or less of a burden on the church. When we planted this church, when I came here um, to to the front range, I thought, you know, I've had a lot of experience. You know, I worked for seven years in social services. I've spent many, many years working on the radio. I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of different things. And and I went out and applied for jobs and more jobs and more and more jobs. And there were no jobs. I thought this shouldn't be that difficult, but it was. Finally, the only job that opened up was to be a pastor of a church on Lookout Mountain. And I thought this isn't my idea of what I wanted to do. Lord, I want to plant a church in the in the front range. And the Lord goes, I have a plan and I have a purpose. You have to provide for your family and you're, we're still going to do what I've asked you to do, but I need you to work there. And I did. But it was through that job that I got a job with the University of Colorado and the university systems with the Center for Legal Studies um, uh, teaching and, and writing and, and working. And it took three years working two or three different jobs as we planted the church and 30 people came and 40 people came and then 100 people came and then 150 people came. And when we were right at about 150 people, that's when I started taking a salary and working less, but not completely not working altogether. And then as more and more people came, then less and less jobs on the outside until we came to a, a place of self-sufficiency. And so this is the idea. Paul writes in verse nine, not because we do not have the authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. In other words, when he says not because we don't have authority, in other words, he had every right to expect expect support. But he chose not to have support in order to provide an example. Work. And so in verse 10, it says, for even if even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Question. Does that sound harsh? You may hold up a theological sign. We'll work for food. But do you really mean it? Paul is continuing to build his his case. He moves from this issue of disfellowship to example, to survival, so that when he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, you need to understand something, and I need to make this clear. And so I'm going to have to draw perhaps what you might consider undue attention, but I need to say it. Paul is not speaking of the person who cannot work. He's not talking even about a person who's unemployed. He's not only not talking about a person who's unemployed, he's not talking about a person who's underemployed. He's not talking about a person who wants to work. But is having a tough time finding a job, that's not the person that he's addressing. He is talking about the person who, in order to feed their own laziness, thinks of scams and ways to get other people to support them. They use their considerable skills to become a mooch. That's what he's talking about. Because, again, if you take this verse out of context and say to someone, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat, you might be missing the point. Because James in chapter 2 says, if you see your brother in need, 
If you see them naked and if you see them hunger, hungry, you give them clothes and you give them food. You don't say you don't work, you don't eat. See you later. That's not what you say. And so it's very, very important that you understand his point. Paul is talking about the person who's in a who has the habitual attitude of laziness. The emphasis is on the will. As a matter of fact, the continuous tense of the verb suggests a habitual attitude. It's the idea. I don't want to work. Well, how about today? I still don't want to work. How about tomorrow? I still don't want to work. I don't want to work. I don't want to work. Paul's response. Then don't plan to eat. Solomon wrote. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. That's what it says in Proverbs sixteen twenty six. So the lazy person says, wow, I'm getting hungry. The lazy person goes, feed me. And the person goes, are you willing to work? No. So which is stronger? Your wicked, perverse, rebellious laziness or your God-given desire to eat. Paul's point? Survival. If disfellowship doesn't work, I don't care what you guys say. I don't care what Christians say, and I don't care what the Bible says. If that doesn't work, then perhaps this will work. Survival. And again, the congregation has a God-given responsibility to care for the needy, to care for the poor. But listen carefully. The church has no responsibility. No responsibility to care for the wicked person who identifies himself or herself as a Christian, but who wickedly decides that they're going to live a life that is in rebellion and disobedience to God and who are lazy and who refuse to work. That's the idea. So those we live in a, in a culture and in a society where the lazy person comes up with this entitlement mentality. Those who will not work hard are entitled to take money and resources from those who are willing to work hard. That's the belief of lazy people. And Paul says, that's not godly thinking. So Paul moves from disfellowship to example, to survival, to this issue of harmony. Look in verse 11. For we hear that there are those who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. The lazy daisies aren't inactive. They have they have plenty of time. To mess with other people's lives. I'm too busy. I'm too busy to work. I'm too busy making life miserable for you. It's even more powerful in the original language. <laughs> Paul receives word. For we hear that some are leading an undisciplined life. By the way, the words some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. It's the same word translated in verse six disorderly. It's the same word translated unruly. It's the same word that means to break ranks, to be out of step, to be out of control. That's the idea. And so Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, 
Busybodies flit from house to house, taking little nectar drops of gossip with them and leaving behind their own residue of irritating pollen. There's a vast difference between putting your nose in other people's business and putting your heart into their problems. And what a good contrast that is. This isn't about putting your nose where it doesn't belong. This is this is not saying you can't be personally and specifically concerned about people's problems. Here's the point. Lazy people still want to have something to do. And usually that means mess with you. And that's the point that Paul is making. As a matter of fact, in verse 12, it says, Now those who are such, we command and exhort. Again, he names the name of Jesus through our Lord Jesus Christ, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. This is the third time in two letters that he's addressed this issue. First Thessalonians 4.11, 1 Thessalonians um, 3.13. But here in verse 13, he says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Paul provides rebuke for the soldier who's fallen out of rank, but he provides encouragement for those who have stayed the course, who refuse to break ranks, who have held the line. He basically says, look, are you tired of people taking advantage? Well, he's not talking about growing tired of putting up with the people who refuse to work. The word will be repeated in Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So when he says, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. What is he talking about? He's talking about proclaiming the gospel. He's talking about providing mechanisms of discipleship. He's talking about evangelism. But it isn't just about worship and it isn't just about discipleship. It isn't just about evangelism. When he's talking about good, he's also talking about going to Denver Rescue Mission. He's talking about helping the, the, the poor and the needy. He's talking about making a provision for those people who are in truly desperate circumstances where you may not have a whole lot. Remember Peter and James. Or, or Peter and John, when they come to the temple, they see a man begging and he goes, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He's not talking about necessarily funding some poverty ministry, but he is talking about saying, I can do this for you. I can at least pray. I can at least hope that God's best and is going to be a part of your life. And he says, don't. Grow weary in doing that. And so for the person who says, I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired of always doing what's right. Paul says, but as for you, brethren, don't grow weary. Get up. Pray. Get up. Work. Get up, make a provision, get up, do what is necessary. Paul is in effect saying, quit messing around. 
settle down, stop meddling in the affairs of others, begin to live a a life that's quiet and consistent and work so that you're not a burden, but rather you're a blessing. Because if you are a blessing instead of a burden, then there's harmony within the congregation. And so Paul repeats the admonition to those who have broken ranks. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. What? Read it again. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. You mean Paul would stoop to shaming a person? You don't understand the text. He's not stooping to shame a person. You see, there's a false idea in our culture. And the false idea is that guilt is bad under every circumstance. And that's not true. There's a reason why there's a God-given mechanism inside of your heart called guilt. It's to motivate you to repent. And by the way, when you confront someone in their wickedness, it isn't the confrontation that creates the guilt. You know how I know that? Because I've been confronted when I do bad things and it wasn't the confrontation. It was when I lied or when I stole or when I cheated on Wednesday. (laughs) I was leaving. I just taught in Psalm 51 and I was leaving the parking lot and I started driving east on Ken Carl and I get about 150 yards and I see the lights and the siren go on and I'm getting pulled over. So I go through the lanes. I go to the right hand side. Jefferson County Sheriff pulls me over. Roll down the window. I wait for the the county sheriff to approach me. Do you know why I pulled you over? I said, Do you suspect that I'm here illegally? He said, no. And I said, I genuinely have no idea why you pulled me over. And he said, we saw you flick a cigarette out of the passenger side window. And I go, that's interesting because there's nobody in the passenger side. And the only time I've ever smoked was when I was on fire. (laughs) But no, you know, I haven't smoked there's and I haven't been smoking. And I would encourage you. I, I don't know what you saw. But I would encourage, you know, do you see ash or smoke? Is there any evidence of any cigarette smoking inside this this vehicle? No. I go, but you saw something and you saw fire come from the vehicle. I said, it's a Toyota. I wonder if this is one that's going to be recalled. Let's take a walk around the because if there's fire coming from my vehicle, this is something I really need to know about. And he said, just give me your license. Sometimes when we're confronted in our guilt, we are guilty. But sometimes we're not. You don't have to feel guilty about something that you didn't do. 
So when Paul repeats the admonition to avoid those who have broken the ranks, here's the, the terror and the danger. If you refuse Paul's advice, you will reinforce the person's foolishness and you will reward the person's foolishness with your attention. And pretty soon, if you reward their foolishness, you will you'll soon find yourself participating in their wickedness. And that's why Paul says this. You mean shame them? Yes. And when I say shame, let me help you understand that. What we mean is we are to make room for restoration. In other words, we're to feel sorrow for our sin. We're to acknowledge the, the pain that we've caused others. Here, Paul's plea is that the person be brought to a place of appropriate guilt. That might shock you or surprise you. But there is a place of appropriate guilt. But we live in a culture and a society that says there's no place for guilt ever. And they couldn't be more wrong. The right place for guilt is when you've done something wrong. And the right place for guilt is to use it as a motivator for you to turn from your sin and to turn to the Savior. That's the idea. Paul's very specific with the person who refuses to obey the instruction. Take note of that person. Don't associate with that person. It literally carries the meaning, don't get mixed up with them. That's, the, that's a literal rendering. Don't get mixed up with them. The pressure of isolation is supposed to bring them to a place of repentance. And in verse 15, it says, don't count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a, as a brother. Why? Because the goal is restoration. We're motivated by love. We're to treat the person not as an enemy, but the object of God's love. As a matter of fact, in Galatians 6, 1, it says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, not looking to yourself or each looking to yourself so that you won't be tempted. Our culture may not embrace a biblical worldview and it may not even embrace a biblical work ethic. But this is what the Bible says. Don't be lazy. Work hard. Do what's right. And in verse 16 and 17 and 18, look how Paul closes. He says, now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Who needs desperate housewives when you have this kind of drama? Doesn't it kind of amaze you that the same kind of drama that's in our church was in the church thousands of years ago? In three short chapters, Paul's described God's judgment on the wicked who reject Jesus. He's discussed God's judgment of the wicked in the day of the Lord in chapter 2. He's predicted the coming of the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, the ultimate destruction and return of Jesus. He's warned of dangerous teachers and make-believers and deceivers, and he's rebuked lazy Christians. In this little epistle, he's made it clear 
that suffering helps us grow and suffering prepares us for glory and suffering glorifies Jesus. We learn that an apostasy has to take place, that a temple must be rebuilt, that a restrainer has to be removed. We learn that God has a plan and that plan includes making disciples. And that the church has to be completed. We learn that we have to be patient and pray. And we learn that we have to be willing to work. Because the Bible doesn't encourage laziness. And here's the point. If each Christian would simply obey the Bible. And be happy. And be holy. Then our life would be a whole lot better. So Paul ends with a benediction. Peace and grace. He begins the way he ends. The believers needed peace and grace. And remember, that's because they were under the gun. They were experiencing hardship, persecution. A number of them had died. Some were having to deal with people in their congregation who were out of control. But we can have peace and we can have grace if we surrender our lives to Jesus. Because remember what the Bible says. It is God who provides the peace. And the way he provides the peace is by giving us grace. The grace comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he says every kind of peace. Peace with God, the peace of God, and peace with one another. The peace comes from his presence. The Lord be with you, he says. This is the God of peace, giving the peace of God. And then Paul adds his personal signature and benediction. The way he closed all of his letters with his seal of security, his signature. And when he writes his signature with his own hand, it's his way of validating and authenticating the content of the message. It's his way of saying. What I am saying is authoritative. Satan has counterfeits and forgeries. So Paul assures that his letter is both authentic and authoritative that it should be read and that it should be listened to and that it should be obeyed and that it should be embraced. You know what? Nobody wants to be the police. No one wants to come over to your house and see the books that you're reading and the movies that you're watching. Nobody wants to carry a church badge and be a budinsky into your life. But somewhere between the police and accountability is a biblical sensibility. And the biblical sensibility is listen carefully to what God is saying. Obey him from the heart. Avoid weirdness and you'll be fine. And I'll be fine. I was probably a little too hard on that Jefferson County Sheriff. (laughs) Heavenly Father, I pray for that guy. Lord, we know that the last thing in the world that our police officers need is sarcasm and mockery. Lord, they have a hard job to do. Lord, when we've done something wrong, Lord, I pray that we would be willing to own up to it. And Lord, when we haven't done something wrong, that we patiently and biblically stand our ground. But Lord, I pray for that person. 
who is unemployed or underemployed. Lord, I pray not simply that this message would be some source of condemnation, but rather that they would listen to it in its context, that this isn't about the person who's unemployed or underemployed. This isn't about the person who desperately wants to work, but for whatever reason finds himself or herself in a difficult situation. And Lord, we pray for each person in our church who finds themselves in that situation. For the unemployed and the underemployed, Lord, we pray that you'd get them a job, not just any job, but a great job. One where they can provide for their family, but also, Lord, a job where they can minister the gospel, where they can provide discipleship and evangelism, where we can promote the things of God, where we can identify the needy and the hurting and the suffering and make a provision for them. Lord, we pray that this passage wouldn't give us a hard heart or an excuse to be wicked in, in, for those who are in deep trouble, who are suffering and in pain. But rather, Lord, that we could be warned and cautioned that there's no place for laziness in the kingdom. And again, Father, we commit this to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.